Welcome to Looking for the Ocean, where we talk about everything Pixar has ever made and what it means to us. I'm Denny Vincent, and with me always is Mark Young. And today, we are Mark Zuckerberg, because this was in Mark Zuckerberg's book club. That's right. Oh, we, really? I, I'm showing the book on the Discord as if, like, me introducing wow, this means I hope that, you like, can I'm all on a TV show. the book on the Discord. I'm on a TV show right we now. We don't like, even have to tell what the title is. We're here to talk about this is. book available at Barnes & Noble. <laughs> Yeah, and wherever it, you can buy your books, Creativity Inc. Overcoming the unseen forces that stand in the way of true inspiration by Ed Catmull, president of Pixar Animation and Disney Animation, with Amy Wallace contributing. Yeah, to the writing of the book. Uh, so it's probably an Amy Wallace joint, but Ed Catmull, you know, had some. The, the impression I got, although granted, I have no idea how this worked, right? Because he talks about how he had, in the, I read the acknowledgments at the end. He talks about, like, mm-hmm. all the people he had test read it and how he worked on this for three years really hard. I'm like, I feel like it'd be really weird to, like, have longer acknowledgments from him than from Amy Wallace. Yeah. So I think Amy Wallace is more there to, like, help with the timeline, help with the interview. Like, there's a lot of quotes in there. I doubt Ed Catmull got those quotes, right? Mm-hmm. He was like, here are quotes from your friends. He's like, all right. And oh. Amy Wallace probably really helped edit it out. Well, I don't let's, wanna let's not discount. pretend we know anything l- yes. about how I don't this know anything. book was written. I don't um, know anything. That's very fair. I just thought the, there's a lot of acknowledgments here that I have yeah. to assume a lot of this still was written by Ed Catmull. But we're aware of this book because I believe it was part of one of our animation syllabi, right? Like, I know of this book for a reason based on college. I don't know. You're making a face like I... Maybe you did. This happened this weekend. Multiple people walked up to me and were like, were you there for this thing at your mom's house at this Halloween party? And I was like, no, I graduated a year before anyone else here. (laughs) Like, do you remember this person? No, I don't. I never met these people. Yeah. Well, I mean, no, I really really think because we had, you know, the professor who was, you know, she taught history of animation, and I feel like this was part of it. I don't know. This book was definitely in my brain, so that's why I initially suggested that we add it to the list and who boy i'm glad we did because i feel like this book for me more than talking to you danny has provided me with a pixar timeline and now i feel like i understand what you're talking about when you refer to internal politics at least at least half the story because i feel like right off the bat my first takeaway from reading this book is that it is written by a man and it it's written by a man who believes that john laster is the greatest genius genius ever and all the apologies for john laster's i'm just sad there's not more of him to go around yeah (laughs) it's basically what it is and And it's like in fact john laster gave a speech in which he apologized for there not being more of him to go around (laughs) And that's like listed as his biggest flaw. And I, I, I do think that was my big takeaway from the book overall. Really was, um, especially the last two chapters, which is like talking about Disney animation and talking about Pixar and like where they go for the future. It's kind of like the Pixar story where it's like we're this is going to be great. Like, and you just read this and you're like, it's like what are we going to do in 2017 that's going to be great? And it's like you're going to put out Coco, which is going to be your greatest one of your greatest films ever, but you're also going to put out Cars three. And I also think, I, I want to point out, I, we're going to go through this book. Mark has an outline that we're actually going to use. I don't have much of an I just I just took notes while I was reading it. That's all. I don't I, have much I of an I feel outline. like this book, 
there are multiple contradictions within this book, but the one that stuck out to me the most is there's a part in, I don't know which chapter, that Ad Catmull goes, people have this misconception that when we were bought by Disney, we'd want, we'd, that's what made us immediately put in pipelines for sequels. We already wanted to make these sequels. And then literally chapters later, it's like, they're going to make these sequels a Toy Story without us, and we weren't going to be involved. And it's like, what do you mean then? Of course you're merging for Disney. <laughs> like, yes, Because you aren't legally allowed to make these films. <laughs> that is the craziest thing to me. Like, when we were talking originally about Circle 7, did you mention that it was like how serious that was that they were allowed to make sequels without the Pixar director's I, I was going to go into it more in our Planes 2 episode, if you remember, because I realized in the Planes episode I wanted to bring it up, and I just never did. Oh, but we can talk about okay. it now if you want. Well... I, I, Circle 7 was indeed, like, meant to be, like, theatrical-ran sequels, basically... Basically, yeah. like, um... Well, well, you okay, remember, so like, they put out Circle Peter Pan was, 2 in theaters? yeah. So Circle 7 was a division of Disney, which existed... Named after the ABC logo. <laughs> yeah, well, it, and it existed at the same time that Pixar existed. And basically, Pixar and Disney had their split around the time just before Ratatouille. Like, before Ratatouille. And they had their split. The book says partially because Disney created Circle 7 because they had the rights to the characters that Pixar created and they were going to release sequels with those characters without the input of the original Pixar directors. And I feel like we haven't talked about how crazy that is on this pod well, yet. Know, we've brought up... I, I mean, it's, it is crazy, but if you think about it, I don't want to be like, think about it from the businessman's perspective. But, like, it does make sense from Michael Eisner's M.O. Like, his entire thing was, I revolutionized Disney animation, and I created the direct, direct-to-video market, right? Mm-hmm. And as we see in this book, they talk about Toy Story 2 a lot, and we talked about this too. Toy Story 2 was designed for a home video, and then they're like, wait, we can put this in theaters and make money off of it? Sure. You know, and that's all Disney cared about was like, we can make money off of it, right? That was Eisner's MO. So from that perspective, Circle 7 makes a lot of sense because if you're going to lose Pixar but keep the rights to their characters, why wouldn't you keep making movies with them? Yeah. You know what also stuck out to me that was interesting, just a random side note also near the... I'm starting at the end because that's what I just read. I'm sorry. No, that's fine. Um, I mean, we'll we'll go back to this the beginning book, and kind of walk through it. This book has a habit, and I assume it's to prevent litigation... That whenever, like, a director is fired or removed from a project, they are never referred to by name in the book. Mm. And I bring this up because this is me coming from a place of I was a kid in 2002. And they talk about how Disney fell apart basically post-Lion King, right? And there was some success here and there. But most people, like, I don't mean the book I read says, but in the Disney Renaissance is Tarzan. And the reason this stands out to me is, let me find the, um, well, I'm not going to find the exact quote because I'm not going to be able to, but, but we talked about this quote before on the podcast. Bob Iger going like, I went to Disneyland in Hong Kong, or let me check to see if it's Hong Kong or Shanghai because now I'm worried I mixed them up. Oh, I think it's Hong Kong, but... I believe it's Hong well, Kong. Well, you all know the story I'm... about Bob Iger seeing the Disney parade. Yes, and he said, the only iconic Disney characters made in the last 10 years were Buzz and Woody, right? Everyone else, there's Mickey, Donald. I remember in this one it mentions Ariel and um, someone else. Mm-hmm. Ariel and uh, some other new one. Newer one than Mickey and Donald. Maybe Cinderella. Uh, Snow White. Snow White. Not new, but you know what I mean? Not one of the, like, the core Disney characters. Like Mickey, Donald, Goofy, Snow White, Ariel. But then I also saw Woody and Buzz, who were the only iconic ones come out in the last 10 years. And 
I feel like this really gives me the time capsule then that Lilo and Stitch really is something that people like grew up on and made a classic because it is a I, I do think Stitch is more iconic than a lot of these characters like I think Stitch is more iconic than Ariel I'm sorry mm-hmm. he's all over the parks now yeah that, that was just a weird thought I had when I was reading this and I bring that up because also again Chris Sanders is one of the directors who gets fired and it's like this director didn't know what he was doing why did he put a serial killer in his movie well, uh, I, you know, we are getting half the story. That's what I found so frustrating about this book. For all the- He was always like, I'm in the right. And it's like, all right. I, I get that we do have to assume that you're in the right because you are successful. But, yeah. Well, and just for all, for all the shade that he's willing to throw at people like uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg and Michael Eisner, he's really, you know, I guess why would you put this in the book about the success of your company? But there is very little mention about actually why Pixar had certain failures, you know? Like, it's... Literally, I read the whole book, I go to the index, look up Cars 2. It is a throwaway line in the book. Yeah. <laughs> and I like Cars 2. Yeah. That said, a book by Ed Catmull addressing failure at Pixar should mention Cars 2. <laughs> well, but it's not really addressing failure. So, let's let's get into... The text itself. Well, there's a chapter about it, but go on. Yeah, yeah. The the text is, it's not the history of Pixar. I th- I thought it was when I pitched this book, but this book. I thought it was a memoir too. Is not. Ed Catmull's advice for managers, based on his experiences with Pixar, which is hilarious to me, because I f- I feel like I read a lot of books on management because it's recommended by one job or another and it's these that are like you can read these things in a day and all of these stories about management are like semi-memoirs so it's like I could do it I could do a biography I could do a I could do a book on management but I don't really have enough like information about either one to fill out 200 pages or so so I'll do both at least that's what this felt like because He's got a little bit of, he's got some great anecdotes where he can't share a ton of information because of the litigation you mentioned earlier, probably because, you know, people got fired. That might also be a a courtesy thing. And then also there's so much padding about, you know, what, what he learned about being a manager of Pixar from this one moment in the company's history. So half the book is the history of Pixar. Half the book is him musing about what it meant for him and it's so weird because i actually even think i i feel like pushing back even on like i, I feel like calling it the history of pixar is such a broad overstatement to you because i feel like it's the history of pixar until they actually become pixar and then as soon as toy story comes out it just runs through everything incredibly quickly where it's like we put out this movie and then we put out this movie and then we put out this movie and it's like all right well well i suppose but i do think that that for me is the most valuable section of the book when he talks about the purchase of Pixar by Disney like that whole chapter is no fluff and he goes step by step through this is where the company was this is why it happened and so I think like there's a good deal of history in the book okay okay can I clarify what I mean is that okay so this book is split into four parts okay yes are you annoyed that I'm talking? No, I'm. What do you What do you mean? Why am I annoyed that you're talking on this podcast? I, I'm, I'm you co-host. Yeah, good point. Uh, so, part one 
basically ends, I'm looking right now, basically ends on Toy Story 2, right? That's where it ends. Yeah. So we get the history of Pixar through Toy Story 2. Then it becomes a self-help book for part two, which is Protecting the New, which is really funny in a way because it ends one of the chapters of the speech from Ratatouille where you realize that you already made this point like five pages ago, but he's like, no, I have to end the chapter on this because it's obviously the end of the chapter, which is fair. It is obviously the end of the chapter, but it's like, you made this point five pages ago, my dude. Anyway... As you can guess, because I just mentioned one of the chapters is basically the speech from Ratatouille. This is where all the other stories come in, and they're very, like, not, like, in order of how they happen. It's like, this relates to this business thing. Yeah. I'm kind of... Uh, also, I gotta say, the other thing I thought that was very foreshadowing here is all the quotes from Bob Peterson about how you don't want your baby taken away from you in the middle of production. Mm-hmm. Or, like, stuff... I, I feel like every Bob Peterson, like, thing in this thing... Because this book came out, like, right before he was fired from Good Dinosaur. <laughs> it's just very ominous. Mm. It's like... Or also, like, the thing that's like, no one wants to be that director who makes the number the first film not to open number one at the box office. And I'm like, the Good Dinosaur is next year. <laughs> so... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, just... Just the whole thing about, like, how beloved John Lasseter is. You know, yes. the whole thing is, like, very bizarre. You know, I I reread that Variety article just before coming on the podcast, and it's like, it, it like how how can these two worlds exist at the same time? You know, so uh, do we want to try to go in order? Because I I want to talk about the the anecdote I tested you. I don't about, even know if we can. We just get to you know, I mean, I took notes. I'm a little baffled that you're like these are what the different sections mean because to me, <laughs> they were just like kind of arbitrary because you're like this is the self-help section and okay. i'm like no 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 they're all, all history all i really mean though is the first forth. section of the book he's holding up the book the to me first again. section of the book is not any self-help mm-hmm. it's just the history after that it becomes the help mixed history where the help is much bigger mm-hmm. um well i i will say that one of my first notes is that he he talks about hypotheticals and problem solving, and he's not talking in anecdotes. So I, I feel like there's a. I, I picked up pretty quickly that this was going to be a book full of his thinking about stuff. But I don't. I mean, we we can totally go in order. It's just we're going to be going through the history of Pixar and then stopping when. Can, can I make one more comment happen. about something we had as an opening conversation? Then we can go in order. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's about an anecdote I texted you about earlier. Oh yeah. Is you know we talk about how you can tell this is written by a man, mm-hmm. and you can tell this is written like in a pre-John Laster Exodus world. Yeah, I mean th- those really two things are kind of interlinked for me just because it's like well, from everything we've heard also now, it's like wow. Is the only mention of Brave in this book is an anecdote that's supposed to make us like the director where he comes off as a psychopath. <laughs> yeah, that's well. <laughs> that's the only point in this book. Brave is mentioned. It's not firing Brenda Chapman. We don't get any yeah. insight to that. You can't, hey, you no, can't actually control John... up Brenda Chapman's name in the book. Well, what? well, you you Sorry. can't find her name in the book, which is you know because she was fired, and you can't find anyone's name who was fired. But it's just kind of like, well, she coded. She credited, was credited which is so as funny. the co-director. Like she has an Oscar for winning that movie. Yeah, <laughs> for for making that part, so much of that movie. Yeah. Um. What I think is also interesting about that is, like, is that what that whole thing is about when he talks about, like, we didn't want people who didn't finish the movie to get credit? Is he, like, angry that Brenda Chapman got credit? I don't know. I don't think I don't, so. I think those That's were reading too much into like, it, I think. I don't know. Also, like, I, I read interviews with Brenda Chapman where she said that she didn't love being a director. 
and I think that but that she like she's directed since then. She has directed since then, but read the interviews. <laughs> like that's what she talked about doing the um that live action one that she just did, and not to say we'll eventually watch. that's that's really that doesn't really contradict anything, but it it you know it's just another dimension. Because I don't want to, you know, you know, when we talk about people, like I don't want to paint a picture of the character of this person in a certain way. Like I don't want to, I don't want to be like, oh, Brenda Chapman was like doing, imply she was like doing this while Mark Andrews was doing this. It's like, yeah, it's it's complex, you know. Uh, yeah, this is like the only allusion to Brenda Chapman's existence, which obviously doesn't use her name, which is Mark Andrews, obviously had stepped into direct parade midway from production at the request of John and myself. Mm -hmm. That's it. That's the only acknowledgement that someone else worked on Brave at any point. Yeah. And this whole book is like, we had some issues with some of the productions. And it's like, and some, I think that the stuff about Newt is actually very candid, mm -hmm. which is nice. Probably because I have a, even though they don't use his name, I'm sure they have a lot of respect for Gary Rydstrom still because yeah. he's like the one of the best sound people to ever like exist. And they all come from that tech area. So, well, and Gary but, Rydstrom seems to have like not had his position altered in any subsequent yeah. film. So, like, yeah, so thing, you're right. Things seem yeah. chill with him. But all yeah. right, let's go for your notes. Oh well, now I'm looking at how I'm not very good at taking notes because I'm like, <laughs> it's very interesting when he explains the series of deals that led to Steve Jobs. Not mentioning, not reminding myself what those deals were. Although, well, tell me, tell me what, what I don't know how to make uh, notes. Well, no, no, no. I mean, I should have just said that it was actually. You know what I just realized is never fucking mentioned this book is how Joe Ramp dies. They not that never comes up. Oh. They're like, and then well, Joe passed away. It never comes up. <laughs> uh, I don't know if that would be like, you know, it's. But a lot. I mean, of it's not like relevant, but it feels like it's something that's. He gets a lot of focus in the first few chapters, you know. Yeah, he I mean he does, I but yeah, I don't know. I think that yeah, 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 I guess if I it can. connects to cars, because the whole arching thing of the book is how Pixar kind of relates to and then doesn't relate to Steve Jobs in a lot of ways. That's actually what my first thing was about. I thought that I I, w I was very interested by how he explained how he went from just so this is Ed Catmull, the tech guy who became the president he goes from being a tech guy to being in charge of these guys who are all working in tech who want to make an animated feature film and then they end up working for Lucasfilm but they're just doing you know tech stuff and developing computer graphics technology and Ed, Ed Catmull is the guy who made the first uh, CGI hand so we probably mentioned that before, but that's that's Ed Catmull. We probably watched deal. his film in film school. Yeah, but so it's it's just interesting to hear how he says that because of George Lucas's divorce, he had to downsize um, Lucasfilm, and Pixar wasn't really producing anything. As, I mean, as much as other groups, I guess. So they get sold, and then he talks about the process of trying to sell Pixar to other companies and everyone rejecting them because no one cares about making a you know computer animated film until they finally get to Steve Jobs and I I don't know I just 
I, fi- I find the backroom stuff interesting about how it was like, you know, they they went to so many people and he talks about developing his pitch for, you know, for the company and they think like, oh man, we're just going to be making like weather simulations or whatever until Steve Job com- Jobs comes along. But Steve also doesn't originally want them. Steve wants them for like... Initially, when he first asked for them, he's, it's clear to them that he wants them to, like, develop a computer. Yeah. Or something like that. And then they're like, no, thank you. And then he comes back yeah. later. I mean, like, okay, let me hear what you got. Yeah, yeah. He also, he goes, he backs off for a while, and then he does come back to them after Steve Jobs, you know, has his falling out with Apple. Um, also, something think- that jumped out to me at this point is how early John Lasseter enters the picture as this like wonder kid and it's like oh my gosh everybody loves john he's the one with all the ideas he's speaking up where no one else will when we make andre and wally b and he introduces the b character and no one else thought about that everyone else just wanted to make a simulation what i find really interesting about this in a way and how this book depicts steve jobs is and john lasseter is we think of steve jobs as one of those prototypical, well, let me talk about a movie I've never seen. And that's the Ashton Kutcher Steve I Jobs I love that. Movie. Do it. Yeah. yeah. I get the impression, well, because the whole thing is that the Sorkin one is supposed to be like a deconstruction of the great man, right? Whereas, uh, well, also is a great man narrative. Whereas this, the Kutcher one, so all I can hear is like, it is just, you know, it's a great man. He has issues, but he's great, right? Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting because I think this movie, this book gives a lot of dimension to Steve where he's still, I, I think, I don't know if I texted you this or not, but like in these early chapters, I just imagined Fassbender, Steve Jobs, delivering the quotes in the book. And I was like, yeah, that this all fits in with that characterization mm-hmm. in that movie. And that's a great performance, too, you know. Um, but then, Lasseter pops up in this book. And you're right, there is like, as we said earlier, there's no flaws given to Lasseter. Which makes sense, because he and Ed Catmull are best friends. Like, I'm not, it's a matter of perspective, right? Mm-hmm. I'm curious... When event, like if Pete Doctor ever wrote one of these like in ten years, because I feel like he'd have to address it, because that's how he got his job, right? As COO of Pixar now, mm-hmm. TCO. Yeah. Um, and it's something where it's like I'm sure they're still friends, you know, because yeah, it's one of those big complicated things, but it's also like you know, you know what I'm getting at. Yeah. Um, I also think, by the way, I don't know if you looked at Edwin Edwin because he's listed as Edwin Catmull on Wikipedia. I don't know if you looked at any of the stuff that happened to him after this, too. Because I was curious. Um, oh, I kind of ran down to the wire. What happened? Uh, well, first, he's currently working at uh, that game company, which is the company that made um, the game Journey, which I remember being a big deal. Mm. But he only started working here, like, in March of 2022. So no game has come out since he started working there, to be clear. Mm. Well, it'd be, but... be kind of weird to turn a game around with a new guy in a year. It's true, but I just meant that like there was nothing like in development since, you know, but he was a key figure in an antitrust scandal, uh, where newly revealed court documents from a 2010 lawsuit. So this happened obviously before the book came out. Basically revealed that Catmull had worked against their employers by, um, of course, Cartoon Brew always has a skew against um, Pixar. I don't know if you know, we talked about Cartoon Brew ever before. It's kind of like one of those blogs that have been around the internet forever, so it's very opinionated. I don't think we've talked um, about them before, but anyway. Uh, it was a scan- the high-tech employee antitrust scandal where 
basically they had no co-call agreements that restrained recruitment of high-tech employees and Pixar was involved in this and Catmull um, defended his actions of being I have responsibility for the payroll I have a responsibility for the long term too I don't want my employee basically it was like you know you can't call someone who's working at Pixar saying do you want to come work at Sony type of thing and they like all colluded together to work on this which is that's kind of funny because one of the things he mentions was important in their contract with Disney was that Disney couldn't have Pixar's directors yes. on contract because they had to be free to leave whenever they wanted to. Yeah. That was an important part of their company philosophy. What I also think is so fascinating about that too is that in since when since Laster has left so many people, the people have been leaving Pixar like in records amount, and Disney too. Where it's like, Laster Studio now has like the director of Wreck It Ralph there, right? Mm-hmm. And like, um, who else? Rich Moore, who's mentioned in this book. Um, the guy who did Toy Story Four is at um, Paramount now. You know, like these people have just been leaving now, right? It's mm-hmm. something where it's very interesting. There's never been this amount of exiting. I'm wondering if it's because specifically this is because Catmull left. Is it because because Catmull retired in 2019. Or 2018, really, but he stayed on for 2019, you know? Well, I don't, but, I don't know. I kind of believe in the charisma of John Lasseter. I feel like these worlds can exist side by side with each other. And I also feel like, you know, obviously Disney had employees that Pixar became in charge of when, you know, they became in charge of the animation at Disney. And it's, it's like it's not hard to imagine that the same thing is happening at Pixar, that you want to get on the train, you know, while it's running, and you want to be part of that, but then as soon as it looks like, oh, this actually wasn't what I thought it was going to be, and the big names aren't there for me to, like, attach myself to, then, you know, you want to go elsewhere. Not to saying that these great, talented animators have to attach themselves to someone, but it's like, well, if the fucking now, gods of Pixar are gone, then what are we doing here? I, there's also, like, a positive slant on this, too, where, you know, because of this thing where Ed Catman was very, like, don't go work for another studio, right? Obviously, this lawsuit already had taken place in 2010, but I feel like this was still, like, you know, obviously his attitude if he's, like, I still defend my still defend my actions here, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but now it's, like, okay, so Kemp Powers does Soul, and then he goes on to do Spider-Verse for Sony, and now it's, like, people at Pixar encourage that, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, it's, like, that's a better opportunity for you to do the Spider-Verse sequel. Right? Or, like, you did Toy Story yeah. 4, uh, and someone's offering you to do, like, a Transformers reboot that's going to be big budget. Sure, that sounds like a cool opportunity, man. I'm curious if that's, like, you know, I'm, I'm trying to, like, you can spin this negatively or possibly is what I'm saying. Right? Mm. I mean... The, the fact that Pixar's having an issue with retaining. Yeah, I mean, well, I, I don't know if it... That, that's, that's what I guess I say. It is Maybe it's not an issue with retaining. Maybe it's just yes. the way it is. But yes. um, I but my actual point I wanted to make about Laster and Jobs, what I think is interesting about this is, and I relate back to those movies, the Steve Jobs movies, because I again I haven't seen the Kutcher one, but I know it doesn't mention Pixar, and obviously the Sorkin one doesn't mention Pixar. But I I look at this thing that I think I think the last the the afterword of this book is beautiful. Like yeah, it's I, really, I really thought that like, too. <laughs> and it's just the morning, like, it's like recounting his friendship with Steve Jobs and how it developed over the years and how he thinks the other books get it wrong. 
And then also, like, talking about... There's a part of it... I, I could open up the exact quote. But it's like, Steve realizes that his real legacy is going to be these movies. Because these movies will last forever. No one's going to remember, like, the like iPhone 1, right? Mm-hmm. He mentioned the iPhone, sure. But they're not going to remember the specifics of what he invented. And I think about that and, like, how... Damn, it is really sad that we're never going to get, like, an honest Steve Jobs biopic that has Pixar within it because of the legal stuff, right? They're never going to be... Because Disney... You know, Disney did Saving Mr. Banks. That's how they can look at themselves, mm. you know? And even if Jobs is is a public figure, I, I don't know. It felt maybe kind of sad where it's like he viewed these as, like, his legacy. Mm-hmm. And it is a good... I, I would agree with him that um, much good things as... Uh, and this is me coming as a movie dude, though, too, obviously. It's like, yeah, Steve Jobs did a lot of stuff, but as... Are any of the things he made gonna last as long as Buzz and Woody? Hard to say. <laughs> like, um, I don't. I th- I think the iPhone is one of those like world shaking. It is kind of like things, you know. Have you seen a BlackBerry yet? No. You should see BlackBerry. Is it good? Yes, it's good. It's um the social network, but if they're all losers and with successions like visual voice and humor voice, basically. Mm-hmm. Like, it's very funny. Mm. Is it by um, Jesse Armstrong? No. It just feels like... It feels very Succession-inspired. It's Canadian. Very Canadian. Oh. Okay. Made by, I think, Matt Johnson. Let me check very quickly. I believe that's who it's made by. Mm. Well, that's yeah. fine in any case. I just... I don't know. It wasn't really on my radar. But, um... Well, I bring it up because in that... Um, they're all, It's a movie about the Blackberry, right? And then mention the Blackberry, how it revolutionized everything. And then there's a moment in it where Steve Jobs shows up... Like, just on video, and it's like, he's announcing the iPhone, and it's like, obviously, it's like, oh shit, we're at the end of the movie, I guess. <laughs> like, as soon as it happens, you're like, oh yes, the iPhone kind of does de- immediately destroy this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but, yes. Yeah, I mean, just but. because of, like, the touchscreen and the emphasis on accessibility, like, making technology accessible, I think that that is... I don't know. I think I actually I think that will be more well, of a, like his is, legacy than Toy Story. But even that, I point out that the movie, the the Steve Jobs movie of Sorkin, I don't remember what exactly, but it ends on with him getting the idea for an iPod. So to me, it's like all of like the things that I remember Steve Jobs for really, and what will be his lasting impact in the culture, in my opinion, are iPhones, yes, and Pixar. Neither of these are addressed by these movies. Maybe the Kutcher one does. I don't know. But the Kutcher one's supposed to be terrible, so I don't know. Mm-hmm. I did find that weird anyway. about watching the... Well, not to not to dwell on the Fassbender Steve Jobs, yes, but yes. I was like, man, the first time I really knew who Steve Jobs was is when he died. So I have no idea about any of this drama that happened like 10 years before that with his, you know, falling out with Apple and all and that. And it intersects in this book, too, where he's like, he was about to get fired by John Scully, and I just cut to Jeff Daniels in my head looking evilly. Mm-hmm. You know... I watched that movie way too recently to read this book. Yeah. I watched it, like, in why did, March. Why did you, like, <laughs> prep for this book with that movie? I didn't... I watched Steve Jobs in, like... You just do it every, March or April. every year. No, it was my first time I watched it since theaters, and I would tell you why, but I've been banned to explain why, so I'm not gonna tell you why I watched it. <laughs> well... Okay. <laughs> well, moving on. You get like four rules for me, four subjects I'm never allowed to bring up, and that's one of them. So. Huh. Okay. Um. All right. Well, 
I'm let me creativity ink. Creativity. Let's ink. talk about this book. Yeah, you keep showing me the the cover, and I keep thinking how menacing it is because it's like it looks like it's Buzz Lightyear's posed as T- Lydia Tar. Yeah, and it's what like, do you think their babies would look like on a their babies? They would be very yeah. smooth, and I you know I I don't know. I feel like Lydia Tar, if she got with Buzz, would no longer like she'd go back to being like Laura be or, or whatever Buzz. her name was before you know like if Lydia Tar got with Buzz it would be because they like ran away together like in um, uh, Five Easy Pieces and then they were part of this like trucking company living on the lamb like I think he would change her you know interesting Lydia Lightyear yeah well or Linda Lightyear yeah okay that was her name Linda Lightyear yeah she would go back to being Linda I think because like <laughs> we should write this because I think he would like <laughs> touch something like deep within her, and she would be like, "I don't need all of that fame anymore. This is, this is real, you know." But anyway, I think their babies would be fine, normal American children. <laughs> is is what I'm saying? They'd live in a cabin. I feel like this is problematic in a way because Lydia is a lesbian, and there's no. Provocations for being bisexual in that film. Maybe I should get canceled for pitching this. Yeah, well, I was gonna say you did pitch it, and I'm really just kind of I'm I'm rolling with I it. I guess. To what if Buzz you. was the surrogate? Mm-hmm. Like, well, Buzz would the be the surrogate. He like the the, there would be another be surrogate, but he would be the sperm donor. <laughs> yes, that's what I mean. Buzz is the sperm donor. Yeah. Well, then it doesn't really matter because I feel like Lydia Tar like. Once she knew that he was this high-powered space ranger guy, like, she wouldn't want to know information about him because she wouldn't want him to, like, be part of her life. Because at that point, it would be so, so it's like a, it's like a rom-com. Or, like, it's like... Is the kids are all like, right like that? I've never seen that movie. Isn't that, like, Mark Ruffalo's their dad and he's not supposed to be? Oh, well, I, I don't know because I haven't seen that movie either. Isn't that funny? Uh-huh. We know we know so much about certain movies because we watched the Oscars one year and they played so much. But it's not like, like, am I ever going to watch? It's not like Brooklyn? anyone talks about the kids are all right anymore. No. Does this director ever make another movie? I don't know. Oh, you she brought made it up. TV. And she made a, like, she made many series. Okay, so I was like, where'd this director go? My mind went she to made, yeah, the so. Baby Mama film featuring Amy Poehler. I don't know why. You went with something... I'm that... right, Mark Ruffalo is the sperm donor for their kids. Oh, okay. Well, anyway, I don't think Buzz would be part of Lydia Tarr's life in that case. But I do think, you know, I don't know where they get that kid in the actual movie Tar. So maybe if, like, I don't know if did they, like, adopt her. Is, I forget if she's from, like, a second marriage or something. That <laughs> The relationship is kind of the most disappointing part of tar for me so i didn't like dwell too much on the existing stuff but anyway creativity inc there's buzz and he's there <laughs> he's posing Lydia tar. ready to but <laughs> we're gonna move on from to yeah i i feel like we should uh have a, a rule mm-hmm. okay when we're reading behind the scenes stuff about pixar yeah. or like watching a documentary about a general Pixar thing. Mm-hmm. Whenever the... We accidentally deleted Toy Story 2 story <laughs> comes up. What? We just chug like... What? What? I feel like anything that's about Pixar, right? Like, history of Pixar, behind-the-scenes Pixar, even if it's, like, a documentary about, like, Lightyear, they'll be like, do you remember the time we accidentally deleted Toy Story 2? Yeah. 
Well, that's not... <laughs> it always comes up. Yeah. Un- unfortunately, I'm just... I've got water for today, so... I'm, I mean, I'm so dead to that story, I'm not even ready to, like, make it a drinking game. It comes up too often. But I do have... I do have my note that is that is just... Baby in car, three exclamation points. Yes! <laughs> That came out of nowhere. It's just like, yeah, that happened. <laughs> yeah, I was like, what? That's the story from Toy Story. Like, you you almost killed a child. Well, you see, you see, deleting the movie, deleting the movie is a nice three act structure story. It's like a it's like a sitcom or a stand up routine. Whereas, yeah, we actually left the baby in a car, but don't worry, we found out about three hours later. We got it out. Isn't that great? We solved that issue. No, the issue. That's not not be like, ah, oh, the baby's okay. So that's the story. Yeah. I'm, I'm just like it, there's no there's no reason to have like we fixed it no you didn't fix it. you shouldn't have to fix it if your employees are leaving babies in cars yeah I, well I mean it's it's so weird <laughs> and then, to hear about it also adds to the whole thing where it's like sorry it adds to the whole thing where like paternity leave versus maternity leave right mm-hmm. because the movie was saved because she had maternity leave but this guy <laughs> left the baby in the car yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm just saying it's it's so weird too thinking about how like I think you know we're we're experiencing this watching all of these movies in order, but basically I think you know we can agree on this that Pixar starts really strong when Ed says he manages the company very poorly, and then Pixar post about Wally or so. To my mind, anyway, does less strong when Ed is the seasoned president and he's used to running things. So that kind of makes me think, man, maybe maybe that baby in the car was like the secret sauce that gave them something. The last something. chapter in this book is titled Notes Day. Mm-hmm. And it takes place in 2013, January 2013, for all of Pixar give each other notes on how to make it a better place to work and a more productive environment mm-hmm. and again the only movies in production at this time that are probably going to turn out to be anything legitimately great are coco and inside out and i know mark disagrees with me on inside out but well i'm not alone in disagreeing about inside out but i mean i get i well, get I mean, what you a, mean if you, if you take those two it's basically just those two. And 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 people people listening at home might be kind of like, oh, this is, you know, subjective or whatever, and Incredibles 2 did great. But Ed himself... But Incredibles is ver- 2, I don't even think, was in development at this point in 2013. Okay. But, well, that is a notoriously rushed... But, sorry, go on. I'm just yeah. saying, sometimes we talk about... Sometimes we talk qualitatively about, you know, how we feel about these films. I really appreciated that Ed makes sure to mention that they're, you know, Pixar, during after they do their merger with Disney, you know, John Lasseter and he become heads of the Disney animation department. And Disney had this slump where for 16 years they didn't have a film open at number one at the box office until Tangled. And... I re- Which is actually a really crazy, uh, really crazy stat. I feel like yeah. that we should be talking, the talking about more. Like Lilo and Stitch didn't top the box office. What? But so, like, you can actually, you really Tarzan. can measure the success of some of these films, and you know, so some 
it's just because we pick out some that are like, oh, this did amazing. It's like you can actually go check that Coco really did do incredibly well, and it it rose above the pack compared to a lot of these things. Which, like he acknowledges, Monsters University did not do very well. That's something that he says in the book. Well, what I want to point out that I think is really funny now that I realize I, I was going to comment. But I was thinking, is Pete Sohn the only person to not direct the one to open at, not open at number one? And I realized uh, there's a very... Do you know what Pixar's first movie not to open at number one is? Is that The Good Dinosaur? Or Cars 2? It's two? Inside Out. Oh. <laughs> Inside Out opens to $90 million, which is insanely high, but it was against the second weekend of Jurassic World. Oh. So Jurassic World did like 100, and it did 90, but it's like... If they were actually embarrassed by Inside Out not opening at number one, when it opened to $90 million, I think it's really funny also in retrospect to read in this. It's like, oh yeah, that was something they didn't want to have happen. Yeah. You know? <laughs> like. Yeah. I mean, it was very refreshing hearing a guy talk about, like, these films need to make money, you know? I feel like, I you know, I love to read any book of Scorsese interviews, but... He's just not the guy that's going to talk about how... Get a letterbox. He's know, on there. He is on there. Sorry. We can, <laughs> we, can go comp, we can go message him or Francesca being like, hello. Francesca's definitely running it. <laughs> <laughs> um, What's up with uh, your box? I, You know what? I Here's a tangent that I was thinking about. Aren't we, like, so lucky? Someone else... I, this probably is a... I think this is a post someone made on Twitter, but it, I just thought about it for a while. But... Like, aren't we so lucky that Martin Scorsese is allowed to make movies that are guaranteed to lose money over and over again, and they have, like, insane budgets, and he just keeps making well, these, like, multi-hour epics for the same budget that was the original Black Panther movie, and they will lose okay. money, like, you know, I mean, maybe they'll make money back in streaming or whatever, I don't even know how that works. Well, that's um, my whole talk, though. I, that's something that's beginning me annoyed about the um, Killers of the Flower Moon discussion as a box office. Where people are like, this movie's a bomb. I'm like, no, it's not. This movie was designed to be put on Apple TV+. Plus. Mm -hmm. Anything it makes in the theater is basically probably an Apple's eyes profit, right? <laughs> like, yeah. Maybe like a little less of the budget, because I know Paramount, like, Paramount put up their own money for marketing and stuff, right? Mm -hmm. I believe. So it's like, Paramount wants to make back their marketing budget, but I'm willing to bet... There's no way the marketing budget is that big, you know? So it's like, I'm sure they're happy. Yeah. In fact, never mind, I won't say it because I'm not allowed to say it. But you, you I, mean, I, mean, I, think, I think we're on the same page guess, here. But if, if you want to say something that I've embargoed, now is probably the yeah. time. Well, okay. So the other second to last chapter is the chapter that we've been talking about a lot, mm -hmm. which is the chapter about Disney. And again, it's one of these things where I read it. So last, so I've gotten into this new podcast, all right? It's very popular. Mm -hmm. It's called Screen Drafts. Have you heard of it? No. So it's basically a game where they do an NFL-style draft, but it's like movies, okay? And I listened to the six-hour episode they did about Pixar, which is absolutely insane. It's basically just they have four people, and they're like, you get 22 pick, you get 21 pick, you get 20 pick, and it's like you can veto. It's like a bunch of rules to it. Anyway, I started doing it with a friend the other day. Yeah, and just because I was like, this is a fun premise for a podcast that obviously I can never rip off because it's already a popular podcast. Mm -hmm. um, by the way, just to tell you what's crazy in that episode is uh, Monsters Inc. gets bottom five placement. Uh, 
So that, that's what, that's the crazy shenanigans that's going on on that podcast, if you're curious about it. Um, uh, well, I guess I like them but, now. So Time to listen to it. The six-hour episode. I'm not doing... They have a six-hour episode? That's what I was saying. It was a six-hour episode where they ranked all the Pixar movies. Oh, man. We're not doing... They had to go through all 22 at the time. If if we... Because before Soul came out. I want to do a list episode, but we're not doing a six-hour episode. We're going to do... We're going to keep it the way we normally do it, and if there's anything worth mentioning, we'll talk about it. But also, I think the more I watch it, like, I'm I'm never... I'm not going to put Monsters, Inc. low... You know, I actually have a lot of respect for it the more movies we watch from Pixar, but it's still just not my favorite compared to, you know, my, anyway. my bullshit Ubermensch tales about rats and cooking. Um, so The point I was going to make, though, is I've been doing these weird, like, drafts with a friend for a couple of days now just because I think it's fun. Mm-hmm. We've done a couple. We did... Um, what did we do? Sorry, I'm trying to remember the two we did because I'm going to tell you what's the actual relevant one. But we did one where it was like the summer movies. Like, what what were the top eight summer movies? Pick back and forth. We did, this was one where you had to pick one of everything. We did one where it was um, the Marvel movies of Phase 4. And then the one we did today, earlier, before I started reading this, which was funny because it prepped me for this, is Disney movies tangle, oh, actually, Princess and the Frog onward, right? And we ranked them all. And I looked at these the list of the movies and I realized... I hate most of these movies. I think most of these movies are mediocre at best. Mm-hmm. And that was one thought I had when I was reading this. It was like, look at how we fixed Disney animation. I'm like, did you fix it? You're financially successful. But I find all these to be like creatively bankrupt with the exception of like Moana and Zootopia, which is a movie that I never will defend because it's something where I was like, I need to rewatch Zootopia because I have no take on it now. You know? Wait, what? You don't like Zootopia? I refuse to have an actual opinion on Zootopia until I rewatch it post like... You know, cops discourse. Oh, copaganda discourse. I feel like I should rewatch it because I've seen it in theaters three times, and I was like, "There's the thing." I feel like Zootopia and Hamilton are very similar, like Obama's fixed America type of movies, right? Mm. And I've, I've seen Hamilton post. I've seen Hamilton post Obama. I still think it works. I haven't seen Zootopia. I should rewatch Zootopia. I well, oof. I'm. I didn't come in here with an opinion prepared about Hamilton or, like, really about Zootopia. I kind of, I kind of hesitate to go on record saying something is like an Obama era movie because I know that, you know, if we had like hardcore leftists listening to this, then they'd be like, actually, things have always been terrible, and like we were never optimistic about the police, like. It doesn't matter though. Were, if you know? it, 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 I'm talking about the general. I f- I'm just saying. I'm just saying I that like the general those... climate. When Zoot, no one, no one saw Zootopia when it came out. And was like the cop. This is propaganda. No one said that. No one was like, huh? How interesting how this addresses racism and how everyone can be racist to each other. And now it's like, what the fuck? Do you mean everyone is racist to each other. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, you can't have this allegory exist mm-hmm. in a world where like everyone is equal in. Like, you know what I mean? Okay. Like, in Zootopia, it's like, these people are actually equal, right? Yeah. You've actually made a very they compelling just take each argument. Other. So, yeah. Which is why it's like, I should be watching Zootopia. I don't want to have an opinion on it right now. But my point is, I look at these the movies that come out after, I'm like, oh, yeah, we fit, like, Frozen was a big success, but is Frozen good? Mm-hmm. Eh. <laughs> Same with, like, I don't know, that's just my whole attitude towards Disney right now. It's like, mm-hmm. I really don't like what they're putting out. Yeah. 
And it is weird that he is very, like, positive about Bolt, which Bolt. I don't... Th- yeah, he talks about, like, oh, man, they they saved Bolt. We fixed Bolt, guys! <laughs> and then <laughs> Bolt came out, and it was, like, so much better. No, no one remembers in 2014 Bolt. Why is he mentioned? Like, the time this book comes out, no one's like, Bolt. Fantastic. Can't believe that they Fantastic made it, piece made of it happen. And he also says... It's like, we made Bolt look like a 90% memorable character i didn't i didn't even i think you walk up to people with a picture of both they're gonna be like what Mm. i didn't even clock like the actual examples of you know all all of these uh contradictions that exist in the book versus the real world i just i have all of my notes are like his manager talk is very off-putting to me and that makes me suspicious and then you have the receipts and I'm impressed by that. The worst chapter in this book is Change in Randomness. Where he goes on for like four pages on like terms like... Well, I'm going to say bell curve. But he, he, he spends like a full page defining what the word stochastic self-similarity means. Stochastic and self-similarity. And I'm just like, dude, just... What? Stochastic self-similarity. Yes. yes. I, Do you know what? Have you heard this term before? This book, because I, I, I never have, but I wasn't like... That part. You messaged me about that earlier, and I'm like, I have no memory of that. Well, this is... Okay, because here's the thing also what's more about this chapter is... He goes into this whole thing, and then he fucking tells the Toy Story 2 deleting story. <laughs> and it's like, alright, yeah. I can skim that too, because I've heard that before. Yeah. And then he goes back into all this, like, business talk about <laughs> this thing. Well, I, you know, I think... To be fair, I think... That this book probably was the codification of things like the brain trust. I really appreciated him explaining how that worked. You know, I, ideally, I'm sure it didn't actually work the way he intended it to, but it's nice hearing that, like, oh, the brain trust was this kind of accidental mix of people who were brought together, and this is when they met, and here's how they gave notes. And he also explains that his role as president was to make sure the members of the Brain Trust followed the rules of, you know, giving constructive feedback and not, you know, being being hurtful to other directors. So I think that's the best valuable anecdote for that. in the book, in my opinion, is the Brain Trust meeting we get to see for Inside Out, um, where Andrew Stanton's like, "Dude, you don't have a movie yet here." Oh wait, before I talk about this. Were you a little thrown by how all the original concepts for Up sounded like a ripoff of Castle in the Sky? <laughs> well, I didn't make that connection, but I, yeah, I, I was, th- I was thrown by how the original concepts for Up were sort of based on a vibe more than like they wanted to tell a specific story. I thought that was very interesting that he mentions that Pete Doctor knew that he wanted to create an experience with this film, but he had no idea about like characters or setting or like how to get there and he he does say and i'm sure that we've said this before it's like easy clickable trivia but like the things that remained after the first session were the title up and the bird and then nothing else is the same about up i'm gonna get back to the anecdote i want to share but i want to say because the up thing also made me think about something which is that um and we kind of referred to this this book kind of just assumes you are the most basic person alive and by that I mean, there's an entire chapter that's book noted by the ends of like, 
Toy Story 3 is a perfect movie that came out fully formed. That is basically the entire chapter. And I'm like, Mark hates Toy Story 3. I know plenty of people who hate Toy Story 3. And they're like, the obvious thing had to be is we had to send Andy to college. And I know plenty of people are like, no, you shouldn't have done that. And I think it's really interesting that, like, the book just assumes, they're like, yeah, Toy Story 3 is great. And like that with Up. And I bring this up because in the Up one, it's like, we got rid of this concept about the eggs leading months to immortality. And we just assumed by removing it, people weren't going to have an issue of months being really old. And we were right. And I'm like, I don't know. I know plenty of people oh, have yeah. issues with months in that movie. <laughs> I have a note about that too. Like, and isn't that like... what everyone talks about in Up? And uh, this is what I'm going to mention. The person you said I'm not allowed to mention is one of the guests on that Pixar pod, the six hour Pixar podcast is Griffin Newman from Blank Check. Holy shit. The, all the things that, 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 that I've embargoed came together at once. Anyway, he, he, he rants that he, his opinion on it. And I feel like... The reason I bring up him also is, like, this is, like, a very, very popular podcaster, right? One of the more popular film podcasters out there. And I've heard him on multiple episodes of different shows talk about Up, and he's like, if Up included the eggs that made you, like, become young, the entire movie would make way more sense. So it's, like, a big, like, someone who's, I don't want to be, like, he's a great, he's a person. But my point is, like, I've... This is a problem, like, you can't just say, this fixed the movie. Because I feel like a lot of people don't think this fixes the movie, because... Even if you don't have that particular issue, knowing that backstory, months is the big complaint of up. Mm-hmm. That, that's what I'm saying. Is like, yeah, this book just assumes that you're like someone who like watches these movies. And I'm a huge Pixar fan. I I like up a decent amount. I agree. Months is a problem with the movie. But you don't think people were a little more basic in 2014? Like now we're all online. No, I feel like there was. I think mean, a backlash actually. Up is the first movie I remember getting an intense backlash, like at home release. Mm. Probably because it was a movie when I was young that got it. Because everyone was always immediately like, first 10 minutes are good, you know? Yeah. But you remember that from, like, forums or something? Like, you were talking with other people? Well, like, film people, yes. I was already talking to film okay, people. Okay, well, I have to I have to check because, you know, I, I wasn't, uh, you know, this is this is back in the before time. I was me. on ToonZone.net around that time. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, so I, just, I was just making sure you had honest, ToonZone. was a bit of... I'll be real, though. I think a lot of that, that was also, like, the anger towards up getting the Disney push over, like, the Princess and the Frog being, like, the traditional animation thing bombing. And everyone's like, but look it up! And they're like, no, Disney, care about traditional animation. You know, mm-hmm. that type of thing. Um, and he's also, but like, anyway. he mentions the thing that I've heard about Princess and the Frog, that it had Princess in the title, and that's why it bombed. He also says that it bombed because it came out near Avatar. But I'm like, I, I need to watch Princess and the Frog, but that's not the things that people complain to me about Princess and the Frog like I, I just don't music. like the movie that's my Princess and the Frog I mean I think the real issue with the Princess and the Frog is this is a conversation I'm sure will come up in our soul episode um you advertise that you have the big black African American princess and you turn her into a frog for the entire movie mm-hmm. so that, that, that's, I think that's why um yeah. I think that's the big creative failing of that film. Yeah. Because it is a film that feels like, in 2010, is like an Obama-era movie in a way, where it's like, Obama was just elected president. We haven't had an African-American princess, but how do we make one that can still sell to the racists? Let's just make her a frog the entire movie mm-hmm. and give her a white best friend who's cool. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Yeah. Um, what was I going to say? Uh, no, okay, to get to the actual anecdote I wanted to talk about is... There's a scene in this where it's a brain trust meeting of Inside Out, and 
he pitches some. They don't. They, they can't explain what he pitches about the movie really. So it's like I don't have a lot of the movie, but then they also say he has the beginning perfect. Mm-hmm. So it's like okay, so you did pitch something, but then it's like I just don't know what it's about or something like that. And Andrew Stan's like, well, clearly this movie's got to be about growing up. And then Bradbury apparently like gets mad and he's like, how dare you say this child has to get let go of childless things? We're animators. How dare you say this that, that she has to grow up? Well, I never grew up. Fuck you. Oh, yeah. Fuck you, Andrew Stanton. He doesn't say fuck you, but it's like a very like animated, angry response to the idea that the movie has to be about growing up and letting go of childish things. But then the movie ends up becoming that anyway. Yeah. So I'm just like, ah, oh, interesting. Well, you don't have to take the notes that you get in a brain trust meeting. I these every every time he has quotes from anyone, I'm like, Jesus Christ. Bradford's voice is so like obvious to me and everything you, is I can immediately him and like the, the Michael Fassbender Steve Jobs voice the two things I mean I was like okay alright mm-hmm. I can see this being said <laughs> you know <laughs> well it's also like this you know we had alluded to it earlier the stuff that Mark Andrews is quoted as saying I'm like man oh man like me, I don't know let me find the exact I can't believe that you have the courtesy to like though. not name people in this book and maybe Mark Andrews is not actually like he has painted in this book but he just it's seems like a positive. dick that's what's crazy like well they have they have him like like leading this room of people like giving Can notes about the, the size of something on a like he's adjusting the size of a i guess you call it like an asset in the scene and they do this whole thing about him like demonstrating how large he wants the asset to be he's talking about a, a like a wooden log propping up a door and ed catmull describes the scene where he makes the log bigger with his pen and then he turns back to the room and he's like now do you do you see what i mean do you see like how this is a better size for the log he says is that stick big enough for everyone yeah and then they all That's respond and i'm like jesus christ if i was i don't want to be in a fucking meeting with this guy where i've got to like watch him do a special okay. dance every time he like makes a minor adjustment to a scene and then he's he also has is quoted as like teasing the one guy and he's can, like can, yo can, can i get a little more can i read can, oh yeah well whatever yeah can, you've got the can i read the excerpt can i read this excerpt sure please yeah and right. again who knows how mark andrews is in real life this is just the, what it's in so, this in the book this section is about dailies which is kind of like you do some work um, on the film just kind of like i would say like watch it a, the next day a, yes um so I'm gonna like, pair, I'm gonna combine a sentence just so we can get into the actual quote. Mm-hmm. Um, Dailies requires engagement on all levels, and it's the director's job to foster and create a safe space for that. Okay, safe place for that. Mark Andrews did this at the Brave meeting by being irrepressible, singing eighty songs, reveling in people's nicknames, Woo Dog, Doctor K. and mocking his own drawing ability while he hurriedly sketched out suggested tweets. Is that all the energy you got for me today? He teased one sleepy colleague. Mm-hmm. I like the... He made a safe place for everyone to feel welcome. Do you have enough energy? <laughs> Fresh and coffee, kid. Yeah, I'm like, like, man, oh man. I feel like I've seen this guy at events that I'm, you know, not working at or something like that. He just, like, he comes off as such a douche. I can't believe that this was included in in an example of like how they work with each other and this book is is all about how pixar is all about candor and 
being able to express whatever's on your mind. And then all the examples we get are, you know, I think that it's pretty valid if you have someone saying that, you know, why should this movie be about growing up? I feel like that, that in my mind, is an interesting question about why should you grow up? And I think, you know, Inside Out, that is what is compelling about Inside Out to most people, I think, is spoiler alert. The big part of that movie is about growing up, and I feel like that's what people remember from that film more than all of the hijinks surrounding that moment. Um, so I think that's a compelling Everyone question. Everyone likes the hijinks. But, well, I don't even remember what the hijinks is. But anyway, just like... There's all sorts of weird shit like that all, all throughout the thing. And I'm also, you know, personally... <laughs> If this book was such a fucking pain to read because I hear about them like, you know, obviously you can't assume specific details just from hearing about things in a book. You know, you don't know how they ran their workplace if they really did have a welcoming workplace, although clearly some people didn't feel welcome and then you can go person by person to see how valid those things are. But they talk about having a, uh, like swimming pool and tennis court and they have like a snack bar on site and all of that shit. And as someone who has actually had a job of like restocking corporate snack bars between meetings, like that job fucking sucks. And those I'm, I'm not an employee of the law firm, when I'm restocking snacks, I'm like an un- underpaid temp doing that. And I do like the notes in the notes day one. It says outright that like there was one where one meeting about people acting entitled, and it's all like I don't want to say like lower level employees there, but then the one like person who's listed like as a supervisor and executive is the executive chef who's just tired of people being like. Can you just make me a, like lunch like in the morning to them? Like we need a catered lunch in the morning, and it's like the morning up. It's like no, I can't do that <laughs> that quickly, and they're entitled. And I thought that was really interesting that the chef got a mention. I don't know. I thought it was cool. Yeah, the chef. I I, I, I would have skimmed that part too. I should have I should have clocked that because I pay attention with chefs and stuff. But like the chef gets oh, mad. Okay, but I'll be real. When I read it, I initially read it as executive chief, and I just kind of glossed over. Then they're talking about making a lunch and i was like huh and i went back what does that say let me look that up real quick i'm so sorry i'm just i'm that's in the last chapter let me do my quick control f thing because that was definitely when i was like on the train it is labeled executive chef i believe is their job label i don't know basically what i'm saying is any any situation like that you're creating a servant like a servant group in your organization and like i'm not about that life Two personal chefs. Motorcycle, a grand piano. Oh, that must be when they, like, Steve is about to die. Hmm. Alright, the word chef comes up in the book a lot because they made ratatouille, so I'm not going to to do this. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm not going to do this. But I just, I know that if you have, like, a tennis court, then you have to hire people to maintain all of that. It's not like, you know, sunshine and lollipops for everyone who works in an organization but you know and i and i really can't say how people are treated actually working at pixar i i kind of suspect 
you know, just, uh, I don't know, just based on my own experiences going around to different places, like these are not, these are not pleasant jobs where you get to like do yoga and take archery lessons like the people you work for, you know? I don't know. I'm just annoyed. That's that's kind of me being like, why wasn't this book about something that it wasn't ever supposed to be about? And, you know, why would Ed Catmull write about that? So, I just really find the chapter about the brain trust to be very interesting. Yeah. Because there was another... I just like the anecdotes. If this entire book was just anecdotes of how they fix story problems, I probably would have liked it a lot more. Because mm-hmm. uh, one thing Brad Bird says is like... Because the whole point of the brain trust is like, They'll tell you something's wrong, but they won't tell you how to fix it. And Brad Bird's anecdote is there's a scene where um, they're like, the, the quote he says is like, they're like, are you doing a Bergman film? They don't actually say that. That's how he reads it. Because but there's a scene where Bob and Helen are yelling at each other. And it's like, this is not about you. That's a scene in the movie, if you remember it. Mm-hmm. And it's like, Bob is terrifying. And Helen is just saying these words. And he's like, I know I wrote something good. So then I realized the fix would be is that, uh, here's it. It's like physically, Bob is the size of a house. Helen is this tiny little thing. Even though Helen is equal, what you're seeing is this big, threatening guy yelling, and it feels like he's an abuser. Once I figured that out, all I had to do was have Helen stretch up when she holds her ground and says, "This is not about you." And immediately, it just works. And they're like, "Nothing. What'd you change?" And he's like, "Like, what, what words did you change?" And he's like, "I changed nothing." Mm-hmm. That's the anecdote. I'm like, "That's so." I, I don't know. I like. I think it's this book is very interesting when it's talking about how messy Pixar movies can be and less so when it's patting itself on the back of how they fixed it mm-hmm. and less explaining of like here are the abstract ways and so we fixed it but also I'm not a business person who's looking for a business self-help book oh the other only other comment I have and the rest we can do is just follow your notes if you want mm-hmm. is there's a chapter in this that I saw on the thing called the hungry beast and the ugly baby and I was really hoping it was going to be about tin toy and it ended up just being about, like, a concept of the ugly baby, which I thought was lame. Mm. I wish it was about Tin Toy. Yeah. I don't have a lot of other structured notes exactly. Something else that jumped out at me, though, was that he said that the shorts didn't make any technological leaps until the Blue Umbrella. Like, between Jerry's game and Blue Umbrella, they just used them kind of, like, to try and train new people for directing, and then that didn't work. And they just ended up making them because people liked them as a bonus thing. And I thought that was kind of neat, you know? I feel like the Sparks shorts exist with a purpose. And I definitely feel like a lot of the, you know, middle of the middle of the films of Pixar shorts are just kind of like, oh, these really are just, like, nice things, you know? Again, though, that was one of those things where I read it and I was like, well, they don't really have a shorts program anymore, or at least it's been, like, transferred to television, you know? And I was kind of like, come on. Mm-hmm. You're, everything he's proud of is gone. The legacy's dead. Yeah. What is a life without a legacy? It seems to me. Is this a beat without a medley? Mm-hmm. All right. I'm not going to be Hamilton. Yeah. Well, I, I honestly kind of, like, killed the momentum. And the, we already talked a little bit about how the book ends with Notes Day, and John Lasseter's speech at the beginning of Notes Day is apologizing for people not getting enough time to see him. And that's, like, its own thing. I don't know. I kind of killed the momentum. Do you have anything else that you want to talk about? I don't know. I don't... I'll be real. I don't think this... I don't think that... I, I, this book, to me, probably the longest thing we've done here because of how long it took to read. 
don't have much to get out of it as I'm not a business major. And any any time he was talking like, here, are you fix business? I was just like, so, such a struggle to get through. Mm-hmm. And all the anecdotes, most of them are stuff I've heard before. Yeah. I mean, so it's like, I did actually think that some of the management tips were, I don't know, actually not, not super helpful, but just kind of affirming in some ways. But it's also like, Ed Catmull doesn't actually seem from this book like a leader genius, you know? Like... He seems like he's there and he does fine, but he doesn't have any kind of piercing insights or anything like that. Yeah, I, I've I've read better books about how. Well, to Mark Zuckerberg put this people. in the book club. Mm-hmm. Well, that's. Have we ever talked about uh, doing writing class with Jacob and like putting, you know, the um, the director on an island? Yeah. No, I don't mean talk about that on the pod. No. Oh. Oh, well, that's, uh, you know what, then, you know, here at Looking for the Ocean, we like to give films something. Some people like to give films a star rating or thumbs up or something like that, but we like to actually give the films something. So I'm going to give this book a few sessions of Playwriting 500, or whatever that was called, um, because it sounds like there was a lot of yelling in the brain trust sessions and that's very fun and cool but when Danny and I took playwriting together our professor Jacob had this rule I mean he had a lot of rules and I actually I think about that structure a lot but one yeah I think about the don't order pizza rule they didn't tell me until after I ordered the pizza hmm? well <laughs> the don't order pizza rule that I broke I, don't know. I didn't know it existed look man I, I'm 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 trying to like be cool about this, but you you seem to think that there is nothing disruptive about ordering a whole ass pizza to a like a forty okay, minute class. Okay, okay, I recognize this in retrospect that I should have asked him beforehand. But my counter argument has always been that he was happy for people to bring donuts in class, so me bring, being order and like arriving late with donuts. So I don't see why me bringing a pizza would be anything different than me bringing donuts because we never use paper in that because class. Because you're not going to share the pizza. You wanted to order a pizza. I literally for offered to share the pizza with everyone. I distinctly remember, like, I will order pizza for everyone in this class. But it's because you wanted pizza. It's it wasn't part of the structure of the class, which was if um, I forget why. Look, I apologized to him in the moment. I just don't think it was that stupid of a suggestion because we brought donuts to class several times before. But you brought the donuts to make up for. I think it was your phone going off in class or something like that. Like, okay, but like that's, pizza is worth more than donuts. Yeah, but you, that's not why you got well, it. You I apologize to this pizza. man. He was fine with me apologizing. And I think I did do wrong. I'm just explaining my thought process in that moment that I don't think it was that dumb. It was you wanted pizza, and so you asked No, to I wanted pizza. food because I had no food all day. And I was like, I need food because I'm not going to be giving good suggestions. I will buy everyone in this class food so no one needs to worry about lunch. That's... Look, I recognize that it was stupid in retrospect. I'm just giving you my, my thoughts in the moment. And I don't think they were that dumb. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I think that our dynamic is about to be like like Brad Bird and Pete Doctor here. Pizza! <laughs> But anyway, I'm going to put this book in Playwriting 500. And then, so what happened was, during writing critiques... What if I ordered pizza? What if I give it pizza? I, I'm not going to do I that. I don't want to give it pizza, because that would disrupt the class. <laughs> but every time a writer submitted new work, 
we during critique sessions the writer wasn't allowed to say anything and i mean in some ways i i think this was a little like so we'd read it like the pitch session session during the brain trust but then during the actual critique session the writer wasn't allowed to speak they were placed on an island as jacob put it and they just listened to comments and then at the end of like 15 minutes or so and everyone spoke their piece then that was it and you just like moved on and in some ways that's like the brain trust was but i'm also like i don't know man i don't think there was a whole lot of yelling in our playwriting classes even though things got pretty hey. spirited I don't know. I'm just. I'm just like. I, suppose, I'm bas- I guess I'm basically I think saying. The only like, person who yells in this book ever is Brad Bertha. I feel like that's a very important thing to like note here. Is that we never get any reports of anyone yelling besides Brad Bird. Not. Not Doctor <laughs> so, K, Mister Foo, or whatever. That oh, was. you're right. You're right. Well, you're right. You're right. But he's not mean yelling. He's just being annoying and yelling. I guess there's you know? no rational yes, way for me to say this, but I, I'm reading about a stressful situation, and I want to put this book in a calm situation, which bears some superficial resemblance to the stressful one. That's what I want to give it. I'm giving this movie, this book I had a lot of options. I had pizza. I had a copy of Tar. Uh, but I'm going to give it... You keep giving things um, copies of Tar. No, I don't usually. I don't think I like Tar. I mean, I do like Tar, but it's not like I love Tar. Don't like I'm tar. giving it a... So there's a lot of talk right now because David Fincher's on the press tour for The Killer... And he's like, maybe I will do a social network too. I don't know. Uh, so I'm going to give this movie a 25-minute segment written by Aaron Sorkin that just at some point addresses Pixar and the Steve Jobs story. Mm-hmm. Who do we cast as Ed Catmull and John Lasseter? Oh, um, Ed Catmull. Ed Catmull should be played. This is like, though, like, this is like, you know, like, founding a Pixar, I'm thinking, Gary. Or like, Pixar, he buys Pixar. John Lasseter should be played by the guy who was in that Clint Eastwood movie. Oh, that's me. Well, I guess so. I guess he's a good actor. Never mind. You're thinking of Paul Walter Hauser. Paul I was going to go Dan Fogler. Who? Dan Fogler? Dan Fogler. I don't know him. He's in the Fantastic Beast movies. He was also just in that Godfather TV show. Mm. It's not mean. I'm saying that he, like, Paul Walter Hauser is, like, he. I mean, they are both hefty dudes, but Paul Walter Hauser is known for playing, like, complex characters who have this, like, Remember edge to them, you got canceled? I was thinking about Paul Walter Hauser getting canceled. <laughs> it never stuck because it was the stupidest way to get canceled. <laughs> that was great. For the listeners, if they want to know how Paul Walter Hauser got canceled, he basically just told a critic to go get his legs, but he wanted to break his legs. <laughs> It's just like, all right, man. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't be saying that, obviously. But it's just so ridiculous. But who plays Ed Catmull then? Ed Catmull. Oh man, that's a hard one because I think that Ed Catmull would really—he has such an old person vibe. I was just gonna put Jeremy Strong as Ed Catmull because Sarah Snook has a bizarrely small role in Steve Jobs, mm-hmm. so maybe we could just put a, a succession like alum there. I feel like Jeremy Strong in 2015 could probably put on the glasses and makeup to play Ed Catmull. Sure. It'd be fine. I don't know. Yeah. I can't picture... Well, I guess he could have, like... Maybe beard. Alan Ruck, actually. I feel like Alan Ruck could maybe Ooh, do it. Yeah, Alan Ruck would actually be a yeah, good Yeah, a little bit of Alan Catmull. Ruck. But then, yeah. ooh, 
So wait, of of succession characters, if they were Pixar, who would you cast as John Lasseter? That one's tough. Yeah. I feel like it has to be uh, one of the like bit players, not like a normal. Person yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. Like he would. Maybe I just get like Alexander Skarsgård to gain weight for it. <laughs> um. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I don't know. There was, there was like no one on Succession who is as like high spirited as John Lasseter was. I mean, is. I mean, I think Kieran Culkin could do it with his energy. Like, if it was like a voice role, I could see Kieran Culkin like trying to capture that energy. I just don't think he could ever like inhabit the body of John Lasseter. Yeah, you don't think that Kieran? I think that Kieran Culkin could play Steve Jobs. I actually think that's really good Steve Jobs casting. I mean, yeah, but the Fassbender movie is... His Fassbender is very good, so it's like... But I think that Fassbender is, is like, too thoughtful. But if you see, like, actual videos of Steve Jobs, he's very animated. I mean, is he too thoughtful because of his performance, or is he too thoughtful because it's an Aaron Sorkin script? Mm, I mean, I, I haven't seen it in forever. Well, anyway, Danny, what are we doing next time? All right, we're doing a detour I added because I just took inventory a couple weeks ago on seeing if I missed any detours. And let me tell you, I actually missed a lot. We're going to figure out when the slot in the ones I missed. But we're going to do two very special episodes. We're going to combine two things. One of them is very... These are both people who will go on to make shorts very recently. One of them is Erica Milson, who directs the Spark Short Loop. And the other one is Kevin... Nolting, who directs 22 versus Earth, which is the sole follow-up short. Or, I guess it's a prequel short. I haven't watched it, actually. But, yes. So, Erica's detour. Erica's actually... Erica is a very interesting person to be talking about. Milsom. Because I'm very curious how she made Loop. Because the whole thing about Loop is, it's, you know, it's a short film. But everything else she's made is a documentary. She's a documentary filmmaker who got to make a spark short just because she's so embedded in the Pixar like documentary behind-the-scenes team. But the short we're going to be talking about from her is not about Pixar. Uh, it is an hour-long documentary called Snow Day. Mm. It is about senior citizens who go on a ski trip every week. And it's just about their time skiing. Mm. And you said she made Loop? Uh, she made Loop. Wow. Spark short loop. That'll be really interesting. Loop is one of the ones that I was, like, very impressed by. The other thing we'll be talking about, and this is, a, uh, I believe, a student film, but again, I might have more information next week. It's by the guy made 22 versus... It's a live-action student film, though, which I always find fascinating. And that's because, era, to give you the perspective of Kevin Nolting's job, is he is an editor. Uh, I thought he... Oh, okay, yeah. He, he's a main editor. He edited Soul, Inside Out, and Up. So he is mainly an editor. But that's interesting to me because that means he did this in 2014. So he shot this after, like, in the process of editing it inside out this short film. Okay. Okay. Right. But it's called Once Upon a Time in West Oakland. I think that's really cool. I don't know if in the future if we should do like films that editors did. No, he directed a short film. Oh, okay. That's my point. Okay. He directed 22 versus Earth, which is the sole direct-to-video or direct-to-Disney Plus short film. Ah. I'm okay. saying this is what his normal job is, like how the other person's normal job is being a director of documentaries. This person's normal job is being an editor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. But they've also done Pixar short films. Okay. But, yes. Great. I would agree. I'm not going to add an editor's yeah. side project. Okay, okay. So it's not you happening. Just yeah, I'm just explaining what there. his background is. 
All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, Looking for the Ocean is produced by Mark Young and Danny Vincent. The show is edited by Mark Young. Our original artwork was designed by Sarah Knopf. You can follow us on social media at Looking for the Ocean. At Facebook, sorry. At Facebook at Looking for the Ocean. Instagram at Looking for the Ocean Pod. Twitter at Pixar Journey. And on our website, Looking for the Ocean, Pixar.podbean.com. You can follow me on MarkYoungPerformer.com. Uh, tonight, I'm going to be in a reading, and then in a few months, I have some shows coming up, so you can see some posts about oh, that. I should start advertising my show soon, too, on this podcast, but not yet. Yeah, don't do it now. Yeah, but <laughs> you should look, Mark, Mark's show is probably actually more reasonable for you to get to, because it will be in New York, and my show will be in a small town in Indiana. I feel like we have so... more listeners in, like, Indiana. Than in New York. Well, you can follow me, Danny, at Blankman's on Letterboxd. You can see me because I follow Barnes Corsese. And a couple other really cool people. Very cool people. If they're listening. Does Jane Schoenberg have a Letterboxd? I don't know. Vera Drew does. Okay. But that's not, not for them or who I was referring to, but that's okay. I was trying to be smooth, so I'm going to move on. Oh, uh, okay. You can listen to my other podcast, looking, uh, The Snuff Club, where we talk about the movies that have the most Oscar nominations and no wins. And we'll see you next time. We'll see you next time.